This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Problems, frankly, in law enforcement and in first responder medicine, whether it's fire or um, the paramedic side of things, is that after these events, we tend, unfortunately, to pat everybody on the back and say, you did a great job, you did a great job, whether or not they did. The question to that answer and more, starting right now. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe. And- Today I have Dr. Kelly Victory here, and we're going to discuss uh, disaster medicine and also a little bit about the active shooter and and the role of the emergency manager and the active shooter. So, Dr. Victory, how did you get into disaster medicine? Well, I am uh, formally trained, residency trained in trauma and emergency medicine. So I started my medical career, my clinical career, uh, as a hospital-based trauma physician. I worked uh, primarily initially in North Carolina and then South Florida and then Cleveland, Ohio. So a number of uh, level one trauma centers and had a traditional trauma practice uh, at that time. And although I didn't realize it at the time, I was becoming more and more not just a trauma and emergency physician but a student of disasters, if you will. Um, I started to realize that the the real challenge wasn't in handling uh, one or two or even three patients necessarily at a time. It was uh, how I and the staff and the hospital and furthermore, the community handled the larger events. And so I morphed over a period of time from that uh, hospital-based practice into a larger scope of practice in disaster and trauma medicine and subsequently um, was trained out of the standard practice of medicine. I trained in a number of different uh, capacities, including with the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard, which we can talk a little bit about. That's actually focused specifically on training uh, people to be leaders in times of crisis and in in disaster. Um, So I've morphed out of my hospital-based practice some time ago and have become uh, much broader in my scope and have become very involved in uh, teaching and training a tactical response and the management of active shooter scenes as well as other disaster scenes. Well, that's really exciting. Is disaster medicine becoming a recognized discipline in, in medicine, or is it still sort of a subset of emergency medicine? It's it's still sort of it's a subset of not only emergency medicine but also uh, trauma surgery um, and and really emergency management. So there is no specific degree in it. Interestingly, in this country, although there are many many uh, different organizations now that offer some components of it, I actually went to avail myself of training in the medical management of mass casualty. So I took more of a military. Although I am a civilian, I took more of the military approach and did some training with a number of military organizations and had the opportunity to train with a number of people from the Israeli army and learn their way of managing mass casualty uh, because I do think that there are things that we should be learning and should be applying in the civilian world that come directly from the military approach. So there is no sort of disaster medicine track right now specifically, but it uh, is absolutely inextricably related to uh, trauma medicine, emergency medicine, general surgery, and certainly to everything related to uh, law enforcement and first responders in general.
in Orange County, California, we do a lot of pod work with, uh, you know, as far as like um, practicing with flu medicines and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things. Well, we one do. of the things that one of the things that I realized, I took a, um, a hiatus out of just pure clinical medicine and ran a large healthcare company that provided uh, healthcare services for Fortune 100 companies, big companies like you know, FedEx and Continental Airlines. And what I realized there was that one of the one of the real challenges for the United States and for any country, but for the United States specifically, is these huge companies that we have here have to think about and plan for and have contingency planning for their businesses to continue to run right. in times of crisis and a disaster. So it's not just looking at disaster uh, from the perspective of how many casualties do you have, how many gunshot wounds, or how many uh, people from motor, motor vehicle crash you need to tend to, but it's also the impact on the greater infrastructure and on that company. So during that time when I was running that that company, I began to understand how something like a pandemic or something lesser, uh, like a just even a flu epidemic, can impact a company. You take a, a Nissan Automotive or a company like that um, when the SARS epidemic hit, and you know most of the the materials and the parts for those Japanese automotive companies were coming from the Far East. Many of them right. were coming from the Far East, and during a time when there was a complete shutdown of air travel for a while because of the SARS epidemic. And so you're thinking, here's something that is a medically-based problem, but it's having profound impact on the economic structure of these corporations. So it's really um, understanding disaster management and how to how to prepare for it, how to build contingency plans, and how to be resilient is critically important, not just from the humanitarian perspective, but from an economic perspective. You're so right. One of the things that we're talking about when we had the swine flu coming through, and at the time I was the emergency manager for for a small city, in, again, in Orange County. And we're looking at what the damages could be as far as our people come into work. And we're talking, we're, we're expecting a 40% potential fallout, not even just because of the people who are getting sick, but you know, if your child gets sick or can't go to school because schools are shut down, we lose workforce that way. So yeah, it's a huge impact on business and in government. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I always find that interesting. One of my favorite books that I, I go back to all the time is Judith Miller with Germs. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good uh, book that I like to read regarding, and I have my students read it as well, uh, re- regarding planning for those type of things. Because, I mean, even on a terrorist aspect of it, the study that they did up in Oregon where that one religious sect tried to influence the um, election by poisoning the, it was a Pizza Hut mm-hmm. salad bar, you know, I mean, things like that and, and just knocking people out that way. So disaster medicine and, and pandemic medicine that does, is a, something we should think about as emergency managers on a daily basis. Absolutely. Let's switch gears here a little bit. And we talked about, you, you mentioned Active Shooter uh, just a little bit ago. And, and today, Active Shooter is on everybody's minds, uh, especially those that are planning for schools. Uh, we seem to have some issues associated with uh, with school school planning. And this, you know, back when the, it was the 80s, I think it was, when we had, you know, the term going postal. Uh, so it's not necessarily a new thing. You know, going postal was the, the post office guys were shooting things up. So what do you think as far as what's the emergency manager's role that they could play in mitigating and also in the response to an active shooter? 
Well, let me first say that you are you're exactly right. You know, the term active shooter, although it's it's uh, unfortunately become part of our common vernacular, um, the concept of people uh, wreaking havoc and uh, causing uh, massive injuries by mass shootings is not new. Unfortunately, the world is full of psychotic, unbalanced, you know, sinister people who can assume that role at any time. You know, if you think about it, during the last decade, we've witnessed more than 45 major active shootings in the United States, you know, where we've had a total of I think it's 91, 95 deaths uh, as part of that violence and, you know, more than 220 some odd seriously wounded people. So I can't overemphasize the need for all communities to develop response planning for an active shooter event. And it's really about developing the response, doing the response planning. So when you talk about how we as responders or emergency managers can mitigate risk, it's really about the foreplan, you know, planning ahead and subsequently training for it. You cannot, there's no such thing as, you know, putting a bunch of players on the field on game day and expecting them to work together cohesively in an orchestrated dance, uh, the kind of thing that's required uh, in a mass casualty if they haven't done it in training, if they haven't done it in practice. There is no such thing. There's not, not a football team out there uh, worth its salt that does just whiteboarding. So uh, when I think about really what I would tell emergency managers and all jurisdictions is, you know, I can't overemphasize the need for them to develop response plans. Uh, no community can declare itself safe from these types of heinous attacks. Uh, certainly that, you know, sleepy, idyllic little hamlet of uh, Newtown, Connecticut would never have imagined the horror that, you know, a lone teen could unleash on a you know, school full of uh, innocent six and seven-year-olds. So if it can happen up there, it can happen anywhere. They incidents happen in municipalities of all sizes, and they can occur without warning. So the only way to mitigate risk is to plan for it and then subsequently to put together trainings. And I would make the, dif the differentiation, Todd, we can talk about this between training and exercising. You know, a lot of people run these exercises where they go, okay, once a year, you're, you're checking the box, you run the mass casualty exercise on a Saturday, and everyone gets jazzed up, and you moulage a bunch of volunteers, and it's all very exciting, and you order pizzas for people. Um, and and I, I don't mean to be making light of that, but you need to understand that is not true, that running that exercise once a year is not the same as training. And you would never go to a surgeon who um, trained, you know, say to take out a spleen that way. Say, yeah, once a year I kind of do this thing on a robot or I sit at my desk and I, you know, I review the protocol for how to remove a spleen. That wouldn't make you as a patient feel very comfortable. Right. Um, you want to know that people have have really trained. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is the kinds of trainings that we are now developing for Active Shooter, where we bring all of the stakeholders together for a very aggressive training, which means it's EMTs, fire, the obviously law enforcement, the school system, the hospital, all of the stakeholders. You know, if you're, my adage is, if you're going to need them on game day, include them during practice. Right, right. And, yeah, and, I know, so that, I, and that is, that's my best advice. Yeah, I know that from personal experience. I worked for the city of uh, Seal Beach, and, and I was on the day that uh, we actually had a shooter go into a small salon, and uh, he uh, killed uh, eight people and uh, shot nine. And we were always, you know, Seal Beach is known as Mayberry by the Sea. It's a small community outside of, just outside of Long Beach. And, uh, yeah, so 
for sure. It took us a little bit by surprise. But the one thing that we did have going for us um, is that we were a small city and we had three other cities or two other cities, I'm sorry, that um, that we did a lot of work with, which was Cyprus and also Los Alamitos. And we had common communications because we were all in a joint uh, powers agreement uh, with our comm center. And so when the shooting did occur, we already had additional police officers from the other jurisdictions on their way in. And it, and it as as horrific as horrific as it was, it could have been much much worse. We were able to you know to to stop it just at that one particular place, and we were able to get the bad guy in. But it's some of those you know those simple quote unquote, and I say that sort of tongue in cheek, simple things like interoperability of radios that that really help using common language. When we teachers say this is not the time to be using because your codes in your jurisdiction may be different from the codes in the jurisdiction you know two over who's coming to help you. So if you know in times of mass disaster, big critical incidents. You think about, for example, the Boston bombing. While things went relatively well at the finish line, what happened when they were actually catching the Sarnaev brothers some couple days later, it was, you know, everyone with a badge and a gun showed up. And so you had people from multiple jurisdictions and not only, you know, multiple levels of government. There was, you know, National Guard was there, FBI was there, you know, there were SWAT teams were there, police were there. And it was, there was nearly, very, very nearly significant what we would call blue-on-blue injuries, where, you know, friendly fire, where people were shooting at the wrong person because we had people in undercover, we had people in, you know, in uniform, and there was just, it was became somewhat of a free-for-all. So, you know, w- one of our, the other things we teach in our active shooter courses, you know, the, the time to be exchanging business cards is not when the bullets are flying. Right. You you want to always say hi. I, you know I'm Joe Smith. I'm chief, you know chief of police. You know in, in this town. We say you want to know those people. Have trained with them. Have some camaraderie with them. Have some understanding that here's how this is going to go down. This is the protocol. This is what we're going to do. Because the best way, and if you've ever danced with a dance partner, you know that it doesn't just happen. It's by doing it over and over again, training for it, and saying you know when I raise my hand this way, I want you to twirl left. Right. That's how, yeah. that's how it works. Oh, it's so true. I mean, we after managing the scene, I had so many people, legitimate people, show up at the command post, you know, with the FBI, the ATF, uh, you know, DEA. I don't know why they showed up. Right. You know, uh, Long Beach Police Department, which was next door, which, interesting enough, they're, LA County and Orange County, they're on complete radio, different radio systems. So our communications people had to trunk LA County in, or, or Long Beach, I mean, um, into us. Um, LA, the LA County Sheriff's Department. Orange County Sheriff's Department. Yeah, we had like every agency in the in the world showing up on our doorstep, and that was one of the things that we learned quickly is we had to manage who we you know let stay, you know, and we right. had to turn to the FBI and the DEA and say, hey, we appreciate your help, but we right now we don't need you. If we need you, we'll call you. And they graciously stepped back. I mean, they knew it wasn't that issue for them. You know, we knew at this right away that it wasn't a terrorist incident, so the FBI didn't need to be there. And managing that scene, it became uh, a priority for the incident commander not to manage the disaster necessarily, but to manage who could stay in the ICP because it just got huge fast. So that was um, what my role ended up being as an emergency manager is I started doing like the logistics section of it and the, and helped out with the planning section because we're small. And um, um, that's what my role was there. And I think that's where, as an EM, that's a non-sworn person with the department department can really help out because they don't need to do standing guard and stuff like this. They can really help with those logistical and, um, and planning sections. 
And so if, yeah, it, you're exactly right. And if there was one thing, one piece of advice I would give to any emergency manager, and, and this is, we'll get back to why I suggest active shooter training as a good place to start. You had to pick one thing to put your money on. Is if you look back, I said I'm a student of disasters, and what I mean is I'm a student of what has gone well, where we've done well in a disaster response, whether it's Katrina or the Boston bombing or you know the Joplin floods, whatever it is, whatever the disaster is, the ones that have gone well and versus ones that have gone poorly. The ones that go well are the ones where unified command is established as quickly as possible. The more quickly you have unified command, and I mean where you have a, an incident commander, but you, all, you have somebody from each of the stakeholders in the, and ideally in the same place, not even on, the same, on a radio. If you can put them physically in the same place and say, okay, good, we've got somebody from the law enforcement, somebody from fire, somebody from, from you know, the school system, somebody from the hospital, and we are all here and we've got unified command established. Those events go as, as seamlessly as possible. They really do. One of the beautiful things about active shooter training specifically is that the standardized protocols that you develop during active shooter training, the collaboration between the agencies, all the different stakeholders, and the skills that are learned are highly transferable and applicable to any other large-scale event. In other words, whether it's an active shooter or it ends up being a tornado or a building collapse or a massive flood, it doesn't matter. 80 to 90% of the steps in that dance remain the same. Right. Regardless of of which what event it is, so if we take the biggest, you know, hairiest, scariest thing and think about an active shooter scene, which for most people is the worst of the worst, what you you know saw at Seal Beach, then you say, okay, eighty to ninety percent of these things will be transferable to the event if it's a flood or something else. And an example of that, the group that I teach with, we taught an active shooter course and a very aggressive hands-on course in Uray, Colorado, some years ago. It's two thousand. In Uray, it's a small town, Colorado, little mountain town. So when you talk about law enforcement, we had people there from the Forest Service. You know, we had a sheriff or two. You got a couple, you know, police officers. So you got people kind of, they're cobbled together, law enforcement, plus, again, people from the school and the hospital and all uh, fire and EMS. And we trained them on this active shooting. And it was the first time most of them had ever trained together for anything. So we did an an aggressive two-day course, rolled out of town at about 7 o'clock in the last night, and less than 12 hours later, uh, they had a mine explosion in your oh, And within like 20 minutes, they mobilized a group of people and got 33 injured miners out of a mine shaft five miles up a dirt road and got them sent out to trauma centers all over the state. And they ended up having only uh, two deaths wow. total. And Asper, there's a really nice uh, article on the Asper website. They actually went out and interviewed these guys and said, how the heck does little Ure, Colorado know how to mount this incredible response? You know, they had, they had it all figured out and they had patient reunification set up and, you know, triage and transport and all this stuff. They, they, they didn't lose track of one patient. Was all, and they said, because we just did this active shooter course, right. you know, yesterday. And, and this had nothing to do with active shooter, but it honestly brought them together and they understood how to manage a big event. And although I, I can't tell you that had they not had, you know, our training, would they have had more deaths? I, I have no idea. They may have had the same two deaths. But what I can tell you, Todd, is that the way that they felt about it 
as a community, their ability to recover and their ability to be you know, resilient and to bounce back after that horrific mine incident was profoundly impacted because they knew that they had done a remarkable job. They'd done anything you know, and everything that anybody could do. Uh, they worked quickly, they worked efficiently, and they felt competent. And it really impacted the resilience of that community. That's a great story, you know, as far as, especially just any kind of training that you do. You know, one of the things that I think is really why Orange County, California does things really well is for the longest time, and just until recently, we had a nuclear power plant just down the street from us uh, on the San Diego and uh, Orange County border, which caused us to train a lot regarding just the instant response to a nuclear power plant uh, meltdown. You know, and, and because of that, I think that Orange County was more progressive than other counties in California and maybe even in the in the country. And I don't want to go too far on the limb, but we already had the interoperability of, of radios and, thing like, and things like that. And we've already cross-trained. And I agree with you 100%. When we're, I kind of giggled a little bit back when he talked about having those big events and buying the pizza for everyone. On those type of trainings or those exercises, we should say, those for me always seem to be for the brass, the chiefs, the city managers, the city council for those things. Because I've been on the other side of that training where I've been sitting in an ambulance all day long and going, oh, okay, what exactly am I doing? And then we right. finally get we finally get the call. We drive up. We, they shove an, a patient in the back of the ambulance. So we ride around the corner and let them out. And we go back into the, right. into the queue again. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I think- it's, as I say, they really are, are there are a lot more show than they are effective at, at really training. And what you want to do is uh, and there are other groups out there that, that, you know, I'm not the only show in town that provide trainings for these things. And you can there are ways to do it, but it requires getting people together and rolling your sleeves up and saying, OK, we're going to do this. We're going to practice it. We're going to train for it and figure it out. How are we going to respond? And when something goes wrong, say, let's do that again. Let's do that. Run that play again. Let's, you know, until we get it right, until we figure it out and figure out where the holes are in our system. It was interesting. We, we ran a, an active shooter course uh, in another location in Colorado where we used a school as the scene. We, we typically do these things like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And it was not until we ran, we're doing the, the training that we realized that when you pull the fire alarm at this particular school, Interestingly, you pull the fire alarm at the particular school, the doors locked, the, the school doors shut and locked, and locked from, so the bad guy was locked in the school, and, the, and nobody could get in. Nobody could get, the first responders couldn't get in, They're, and the school principal said, oh my gosh, this is all really messed up. We had right. no idea that when you pull the fire alarm, these school doors, you know, unlatched, closed, and locked. And those are things that sometimes you just don't realize until you go through a training. So they can be very, very illustrative. And emergency, I think the emergency managers can come out looking like a champ if they're the ones who say, let's do this training. Let's bring everybody together. You invariably find some areas where there are some holes in the in your planning or protocols. And it, it may be something simple like uh radios that are not interoperable, or it may be something like that, where I'm saying where the school doors shut and locked when the uh, fire alarm was pulled. Uh, you never know what it's going to be, but I guarantee it won't be wasted time. You know, have you found that some people, and when I say people, I'm talking about in the, not, not the lying guys, but mostly I'm, I'm thinking the brass, are afraid that if they do a drill or some training um, like that, that they will uh, 
uh, they'll, they'll look like they fail. Because I, I think if we're going to fail, I'd rather do it during training than the actual event. But I'll tell I, you, Todd, I, I, think it's, I think it's probably, you know, you're addressing the elephant in the room. I think it's probably the biggest um, impediment to training is that people are afraid to have their inadequacies uh, or their ignorance exposed. And so they just don't do it. And we do it, you know, at their detriment. I think that's exactly right. And in fact, you know, one of the biggest problems, frankly, in law enforcement and in first responder medicine, whether it's fire or um, the paramedic side of things, is that after these events, we tend, unfortunately, to pat everybody on the back and say, you did a great job, you did a great job whether or not they did. And frankly, you know, what, what we have tried to do, what I've tried to do and to promote is the idea that we need to look at this training the same way that surgeons do. And, and surgeons, I don't know if you're aware, do a thing, but they're really the only specialty that does it called morbidity and mortality. And yeah. depending on the size of the hospital, every month at a minimum and every week at a big hospital, you know, all the surgeons get together behind closed doors and they look at all the cases that went badly that week. And they say, what the heck happened here? And the only way you can do that is if there's an element, number one, of trust. If people understand that this is not a punitive situation, that this is nobody's going to get sued, but we need to understand what the heck happened here. And too often, unfortunately, in law enforcement, fire, rescue, the after action report tend to be really, really sanitized. And what's put out to the public is a stellar response was uh, mounted by, you know, our, our you know, fire EMS or whatever it was. And, you know, you, while you want the public to have confidence in their first responders, the first responders themselves aren't doing each other any good if they don't sit down and go, wow, that was not the way to do that. And you saw that, for example, in Colorado after the Aurora theater shooting, that was not a good response. Right. Uh, it was, uh, you know, we, we first had Columbine, Colorado for reasons that are somewhat unclear, seems to be ground zero for active shooter events. So my home state seems to, um, to have, for whatever reason, a lot of these events. And so we had Columbine, which, uh, you know, is the first big active shooter that most people can remember. Uh, and then unfortunately had the Aurora theater shooting as well. But you are, I really believe, obligated to sit back and be very honest, not only to do the training, be willing to expose your inadequacies, expose your ignorance, expose your, you know, go ahead and fail. Because as you said, boy, if you're going to fail, you want to fail during during a, a training event, not when the real thing happens. Getting back to my story about URA Colorado and the mine explosion, that's what allowed them to be so as resilient as they were. You know, they mourned the people who died, they mourned the people who got injured, and they got up and moved on very quickly. I'd say the same thing about Boston. It's why Boston, you know, after the Boston Marathon bombing, you know, they adopted that Boston Strong because they knew they'd done a really good job there. Um, right. They trained for it. They were prepared. They did a good job. Everybody, 100% of the people who were transported to the hospital lived, 100%. I mean, that's really a, a, a remarkable thing. So, yes. you know, the ability, if you want to, to fail, you want to fail during training, not during a, the real event. So what does the recovery process look like for something like the Boston bombing? And the answer to that question and more when we return from this quick break.
Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed Tac Med. They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to and managing large-scale incidents, HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs, leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs, and the staff of High Speed Tac Med will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed Tac Med today. Day, 805-419-0024. Again, that's 805-419-0024. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Emergencies happen. Whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. If you're trying to reach people in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we are bringing in guests from around the world to talk about best practices and trends in emergency management and response. We also have the blog on EM Weekly's website and the EM Quarterly e-magazine. For more information, please email Brian at brian at emweekly.com. And welcome back from that quick break, and thank you again for listening to the sponsors, and we can't do what we're doing here without them. So let's get back into it. So what does the recovery process look like? For something like the Boston bombing or Aurora, Colorado, I mean, I know what it looked like for a small town. Uh, what did, what's it look like for a larger town, and, and how does that how does that process work? Do you think? Well, I you know, I, I, if I take it from the highest level, if you look at you know resilience or reaction, you know, um, let's first just look at that. What are the what are the possibilities for how what would happen in any jurisdiction? Um, and a range of responsibilities are responses are possible. It would include number one, uh, and ideally they bounce back better. Uh, you know that where you know the capacities are enhanced, exposures you know end up being reduced, and the system is more able to deal with uh, future shocks and stresses. Other communities will bounce back, but the pre-existing conditions still prevail. They haven't actually done anything to mitigate the risk of that happening again. Other communities that are not prepared recover, but they recover worse than before. Take a uh, New Orleans after Katrina. Right. Uh, meaning that capacities are reduced. They, they've recovered, but they are worse off than they were before and capacities are, are reduced. And in the worst case scenario, the system totally collapses and you have a catastrophic uh, reduction in capacity to, to cope with the future. And that would be something like Haiti, you know, a place like Haiti where it just fall, absolutely fell apart after the earthquake. So, you know, what determines where you fall on that spectrum I think largely, once again, to, you know, at the risk of sounding uh, like a broken record, comes back to the training piece. There's clearly some component um, of luck uh, in this. I would say that at the Boston bombing, if you look at Boston, while they had trained for and were very well prepared for events, you know, the Boston bombing itself, if you think about it, happened, was it really an artificial setting? You know, when would you have an event like that happen at a scene, a physical venue, where you already have ambulances lined up, 
with IV right. bags punctured, hanging, ready. You know, okay, you've got you know a multiplicity of uh, first responders already there, paramedics and nurses and people volunteering. Furthermore, it happened on a Monday that was a holiday, so there was no traffic. So it was very easy to transfer as a holiday. Okay, and it happened at change of shift at the hospital. So oh, you geez. had double staff. It was double right. staff. So th- there was a convergence. So there was an alignment of stars, if you will. And, and I was very, very, very familiar with the after action on the entire uh, Boston uh, bombing because it was heavily critiqued by the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative because it's based at Harvard. But right. so, so that, there was a bit that was artificial with, with uh, the Boston bombing. All that said, um, the fact that they trained together, they trained for it, the fire, EMS, police, you know, law enforcement there, the hospitals had all coordinated and done trainings before that. They knew each other. There's a great familiarity. Boston is a bit, you know, is a small, big town. So right. they bounced back quickly. I think that other places like what's happened in Colorado, not so much. There was a lot of, because the, um, the after action reports read very well, for example, on Aurora, but the people who were at the scene knew differently. They knew right. that things were not had did not go down. Many, many of the wounded were transported in the back of police cars. People were shot, and there were the the uh, ambulances weren't allowed into the perimeter, so the ambulances couldn't get people out. So people were bleeding to death and got thrown in the back of police cars, and it became it was just not a well coordinated event. So there, people didn't feel great about how that went off. And I think there's still some some bad feelings harbored there that they are working through by doing additional training. And then, you know, part of it has to do with the, you know, the strength of the infrastructure going into it. You take a place that's already fragile, like Haiti, where there's a fragility based on poverty and lack of infrastructure already. It doesn't take much to topple that sort of a community. So it's really um, a number of things. And you can only, you know, you can only control the things you can control. So I look at it and say the things, there's so many things in life and and the trauma physician in me has always uh, lived by the idea that there are so many pieces of life that are unpredictable that we cannot control. We cannot control the fact that there will be a crazed gunman. The only thing we can control is our ability to anticipate, to be aware, to be, to have trained for it and to have some idea of where to start. And you know as well as I do that you can, muscle memory is the same. I don't care if you're a tennis player or a golfer and you practice that swing over and over again or a surgeon. Muscle memory we build the same way when we build how to respond to trauma and casualty and disaster. Once you get started, it becomes, you know, it becomes easier, but you have to have practiced it. And I think that emergency managers really can get in the game and say, let's do this. I don't just want to read a book about it. I'm not just, if I had a dime for every manual that people have sitting, you know, I would ask big companies, what are you going to do? What's your, what's your pandemic plan or what's your disaster plan or what's your fire plan? And they'd point to, you know, the, the proverbial three ring binder sitting on the shelf. Well, Again, I don't know about you, but if somebody said, you know, how many spleens have you taken out, Dr. Victory? And I said, I, well, none, but I've got a three-ring binder right there that tells me how to do it. I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I would not trust that doctor. I wouldn't feel that confident. So I, I think it's about really rolling those sleeves up and, and putting the time in and saying, we got to plan some training sessions. And if you don't know how to do it yourself, you know, then bring somebody in who can help you plan it. Yeah, I agree with you. I was talking to Craig Fouguet one day um, at a conference in Florida, and uh, he uh, 
he made a statement and it stuck with me uh, for a long time. It's, and I even teach this to my students at the college. And he said that the emergency manager is like the football coach. He goes, you get out there, you train everybody, you do the plays, you write it up, you make sure that they know what's going on. And the day that the event happens, you're going to make sure they're going to know how to do it and you're going to be on the sidelines coaching them along. And right. um, I, yeah, and, and I agree with that a lot. Although I'm not sure how much on the sidelines, I think sometimes you're in the thick of it. But yeah, I mean, that's what the emergency manager is about. And I think that if it's, for my opinion, a strong emergency manager in, in, a, in a city is going to be out there making sure that he's coordinating the police department and the fire department and EMS and county health and these people to make sure they're at the table and, and playing in that, uh, in that sandbox before the uh, event really occurs. And, that's, and that is exactly the secret sauce. It's making sure they've done it beforehand because it's infinitely easier. It's, all, it's essentially impossible to manage them or to coordinate them from the sidelines or from even from the center of the field if you didn't do it beforehand. Because in the thick of the moment, everybody, you know, the tensions are high, people are scared. You, in a local event, you never know if some of your first responders already are going to have, have personal involvement in it. You know, as you know, obviously, when there are things like pandemics or, or natural events, hurricanes and, you know, tornadoes and floods and those sorts of things, you know, sometimes upwards of 30% of your first responders are personally involved, you know, have right. they're worried about their own loved ones. So you cannot, as an emergency manager, think about managing this scene, if you haven't done it ahead of time and have those policies, protocols, those standards, and have, you know, sort of worked through it ahead of time, and then you've got a chance. Uh, And I agree, I, I have no problem with emergency managers rolling up their sleeves and digging in as long as they are able to keep that wide purview because right. their job really uh, they will be undermine themselves immediately if they get in and start doing something and lose track of the entire scene. Yeah, so true. That is so true. We still definitely have to be at the 10,000 foot level to make yeah. sure things are, are going right. right. Well, okay. Um, I have one last question for you. And sometimes this is the, uh, the hardest question, With, especially for my students and people that are new to um, this line of work. What kind of publication or magazine or, or book or what do you recommend them to, to read to kind of get their, their feet wet and their teeth dirty? Well, I guess um, I would say two two different books, two different things, because they come at it from a different angle. One is a publication called Disaster Resilience, a National Imperative, and it uh, was put together by a group of national academies, the uh, Committee on Science and Engineering and Public Policy. There, there's a whole committee that was put together on increasing national resilience to hazards and disasters after 9-11, and it really addresses the broad issues of increasing the nation's resilience to disasters. It goes through the whole thing of, you know, really understanding beyond the uh, unquantifiable costs of injury and loss of life, really looking at the economic damages from natural natural and uh, man-made disasters. So that is worth reading if you are a uh, an emergency manager. It makes a good case to invest in enhancing resilience. It makes a really good economic case. So it will provide an emergency manager with some good data points to take to what whatever it is, city council or, uh, you know, whatever budgeting committee they need to do to ask to, you know, or, or more like beg for money, to beg for, for the funds to do a training. It makes a really good case uh, to 
to invest in enhancing resilience for your community. Uh, you know, the ability to prepare and plan for and absorb and recover more successfully from an adverse event. So that's the, um, the disaster resilience, a national imperative. The other one that I think is worth reading is one that's just called Resilience, which was written by uh, Greg Grayton, uh, Eric, excuse me, Eric uh, Graytons, who was a uh, former Navy SEAL. And he dialogues in this book his own recovery, uh, as well as the recovery of one of his uh, steel comrades, a guy named Zach Walker, after they returned from some pretty heinous tours overseas. And it deals with how they as soldiers, uh, and it would be applicable to me to first responders, to any leader who's been in a in a big disaster or crisis or high-stress environment, how we can confront pain, uh, learn to practice compassion, find a mentor during and then subsequent to the event and and ultimately create happiness, if you will, in the wake of horrific experiences and events. And so I think given the incidence of uh, PTSD and other sort of traumatic, uh, post-traumatic related issues that first responders and emergency managers have, and I think in order to prepare for it, there are some people who may never have been exposed to these things, but they hold the title now of an emergency manager, but may never have even thought, you know, been in such a scene. Um, I think reading a book like Resilience by Eric Reitens um, can be extraordinarily helpful to be thinking about how they may feel, how they may react, and to get themselves personally uh, prepared for that event should it happen. That's great. Those are two really good uh, book recommendations, and we'll put those down in the show notes as well. So if you guys didn't get those uh, notes, you can do rewind or we can do be down the show notes. Can we uh, get a hold of you if somebody wants to, to get in contact with you? <laughs> People are free to contact me directly. I I have a website that is a but is it's a a blog that is not particularly active. DrKellyVictory.com. It's really so there are some things there, but the easiest way to get in contact with me, and I'm happy to have people contact me directly via email, just kvictory at victoryhealth.com. Okay. Uh, and that's the easiest way to get me. Uh, kvictory at victoryhealth.com and I'm happy to uh, provide whatever guidance or support or direction I can to people who are looking um, whether it's uh, to get training or just you know for more resources uh, happy to talk to people awesome thank you so much and again uh, Dr. Victory thank you for being here and, and discussing these really important things everybody thank you so much for, for listening to us and if you have an opportunity please uh, leave a comment on the iTunes and or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to us and just you know, let us know how you feel and uh, again if you ever need to get a hold of us please uh, check us out uh, at EM Weekly and, uh, and sign up for our, uh, our information thank you again Dr. Victory